0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, August 26, 2018 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com.
1: This passage is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. and he has seen in a vision a man called a name man named Ananias, Come in and lay his his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of God.
0: You may have a seat. Thank you for being here with us. My name is Sam, and welcome to Restoration Road. I have the privilege of preaching out of Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there. And Nate just read there. I'm going to pray, ask God to move me out of the way, and do whatever he's going to do this morning you bow with me. Father, we praise you. Jesus, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we praise you. Jesus, we declare and confess that you are King, Ruler of all, Lord of Lords. We are coming here not to be entertained, not to be even educated, Lord, but to worship you, to declare your greatness, to praise you, to talk about you redeeming, you resurrecting, and you returning. We claim no sufficiency in ourself, no reason in ourselves to come before you, Lord, but we have been made worthy by your sacrifice, by your blood, and we are now hidden in you, Jesus, and we thank you for that. We have been made worthy and competent by grace. We did not deserve it and yet we have been loved with a love that is beyond measure. So Lord, we ask this morning, Jesus, that you will stir us, that you will surprise us. For many of us have come here, Lord, not expecting to meet you, but let us expect to see you. Let us expect to be overwhelmed by your grace for the first time or to be renewed again by the grace that has saved us. Lord, we want to know you, but the truth is we are prone to go our own way. We are prone to wander. We are prone to seek what we want. We are prone to... Do what is easy or what is natural, but Lord, we want to walk in your ways, for you say that is the path of joy. So help us to know you, but more than that, remind us that you know us, that our brokenness is not a secret to you, that our doubts and our fears and our weaknesses and our rebellion is not hidden from you, that you know us better than we know ourselves, so help us to walk in the light with you, with what you already know. And as we walk in the light with you, help us to walk in the light with one another. Teach us this morning that we might believe, but also so that we might teach others, so that is why you have us here. Bless our time this morning. Holy Spirit, move me out of the way. Speak the words that you need to speak, even if I have not spoken them or prepared them perfectly. Words of conviction, words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of instruction change us from the inside out. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I have been looking forward to preaching this text for a super long time. That does not mean it's going to be a good sermon. It just means I really have been excited about Acts chapter 9, and that is because it is an important text in the history of my own ministry, my own life. Back in 2006, after a year of Casting vision and assessment and planning a small group of brothers and sisters in Christ helped plant a church, and it was called Damascus Road Church. It is still there in Marysville, growing, and thriving, and preaching the gospel. And the name was inspired, obviously, from Acts chapter 9. And If you don't know, Acts chapter 9, as Nate just read the first part of it, is the story of a religious fanatic whose name's Saul. He will later be identified as Paul, but that was also his name. One was just a Hebrew name, one was a Roman name, so he didn't get his name changed as much as just begin to employ. But I'll call him Saul today, or I'll probably slip into Paul every now and then. But Saul had set his mind and body toward this small town, which is now a large city in the Nation of Syria still exists today, but he had set his mind to go towards a city called Damascus, and he was hell-bent on finding and imprisoning disciples of Jesus. And with every zealous, passionate, but misguided step, he unknowingly walked closer and closer to a face-to-face encounter with the one true God who he thought he was worshiping and serving. And he couldn't have been more wrong. Saul had what can only be described in what I have often said, an unexpected meeting with Jesus. An unexpected meeting with Jesus. And it was a meeting that transformed him from a murderer who hated Jesus to a martyr who loved him. You go, what could have happened Possibly done that. Could have changed someone who was murdering Christians to someone who was then murdered as a Christian. Now, a desire for those kinds of unexpected meetings, those unexpected meetings with Jesus. Was the kind of thing that fueled the mission of our church, Damascus Road Church. We want to see more unexpected meetings with Jesus. And my prayers, that still fuels our mission today here in Snohomish. Because the Damascus Road experience, as you read it, it's a, it's a crazy experience. That, that phrase, a Damascus Road experience, at least in, in Christian culture, has become this kind of label to describe. A transformation of a, a radical person. But I would argue that it is, in fact, the story of anyone who was ever saved by Jesus. It may not include the same level or kind of drama that we will read about with Saul, but it still, every single conversion has, involves the same level of miracle. It is a miracle that Paul became a murderer or was a murderer and became a martyr. It's a miracle when anyone is saved and turns from their sin and begins to follow Jesus who sees a story that was foolish and it becomes the very truth of God. It's a miracle. Unexpected encounters with Jesus change Everything. And these changes don't just come because someone heard the story of Jesus or because someone learned the teachings of Jesus. They come by and through the person of Jesus. We must always remember, and it helps to revisit the beginning of the book of Acts to ask ourselves what took this group of fearful men? who were scared, who had scattered themselves at the crucifixion of Jesus and suddenly became bold witnesses, courageous leaders, most of whom died for their faith. What changed that? The beginning of the book of Acts tells us, as does the end of the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, the book of Luke, and the book of John. But in the beginning of the book of Acts, it says this, Jesus, Resurrected Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. They met resurrected Jesus, and he didn't just show up and disappear, he showed up and stayed. The man whom they saw killed by professional executioners, the man who they saw suffer. The man who they saw put into a tomb and sealed had risen from the dead. If anyone asks you, what is Christianity about? If you yourself wonder, what is Christianity about? If nothing else, and primarily, and most importantly, it's about the historical, real resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what it's about. And it's amazing how little we talk about the resurrection anymore, except maybe mentioning it or perhaps emphasizing it and celebrating it on Easter. But it is the thing that every Christian, every salvation, their salvation is founded on the resurrection of Jesus. Our faith, our mission is driven by the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. And that by grace, Jesus is doing something still. He's still pursuing sinners. He's still rescuing the worst of sinners from death. And when I say that he is rescuing the worst of sinners, I know your mind goes, yeah, I know a pretty bad sinner. I'm talking about us. The worst of sinners. You know, if if you don't see yourself as the worst sinner in any room you walk into, you don't understand the grace that has been shown to you by Christ. And that doesn't mean you need to think, like, oh, I'm so horrible. It needs to, you to understand how big Christ's love is. But Christ's rescue of sinners is so much more than personal fire insurance it's so much more than just saving us from certain death from from the hell of fire jesus saves us to many things he saves us to himself he saves us to his mission and his way and he saves us to his people and that's what we see in the story it's not just saving you from going the wrong way it's saving you to all these things So I want to talk about that. If there is a theme in the story of God, a theme in the story of Saul, a theme in the story of anyone who's saved, that theme is summarized by one big, powerful word. Grace. Grace. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor and love. See, in Acts we see God seeking and saving the lost, the rebellious, the broken. And he begins his saving in Jerusalem and then extends through Judea and through Samaria. And by the time we're done with the book of Acts, to the ends of the earth, which is the fullness of Rome at the time. But up to this point in the ministry... And really, for the first probably 10 to 15 years of the church's history, most of the converts were Jewish. We see this in Acts, where Jewish disciples of a Jewish Savior have been exclusively seen Jewish converts in Jerusalem. And then we saw a few weeks ago that the Samaritans, kind of the half-breed Jews... We're saved. And then last week we saw the Ethiopian eunuch who is a God-fearing Jew. He's not Jewish in lineage, but he has become to worship in the Jewish faith. And he gets introduced to Jesus. And now you have what can only be described as the super Jew. I can say that because I'm Jewish. My mom is Jewish. My whole side of my family is Jewish. Jewish. They have not accepted Jesus the Messiah yet, but I'm working on them. But Paul is like Superman Jew. And that's his own description in many ways. And God takes this man, this Jewish man, and he saves him so that he might take the gospel to the non-Jewish world. And that would probably be most of us here. And this is where it began. The man that God chooses for this mission is the last man we would ever expect for God to choose. There are those people in our minds that we think, man, there's no way that person's ever going to be saved. That's a hard case. I'm not even sure I want them to be saved. There are those people in our minds. The fact that God shows grace to anyone should be a surprise. The fact that he says everyone or or anyone at any moment should surprise us, but there are those special cases where we go, wow. But the truth is, if we could see into the hearts of men or be honest about our own, we would never be able to cease from being amazed by God's grace to us. We just don't see ourselves rightly most of the time. We think much better of ourselves than we ought. And so God's grace doesn't seem like that big a deal. But when you see a guy like Saul, you're like, whoa! If God and Christ can save him. Now we're first introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 8, where he stands in approval, it says, at Stephen's stoning. And this isn't Stephen's guillotine losing his head. This is Stephen's being stoned, bloody, messy, long-suffering, ugly murder. And Saul is likely the one telling Luke who's writing down the story about those events. And he says, I stood there in approval in full endorsement of the murder of this godly man. And if you continue to read in Acts chapter 8, in verse 3 it says, after that moment that inspired, it ignited something in Paul, the death of this godly man. And it says, Saul was ravaging the church. And he was entering house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Can you imagine that experience? Can you imagine the fear that Saul began to generate, his name began to generate as he would knock on doors. Who is it? It's Saul. Open up. He'd be dragging women into the streets, men into the streets, putting them in prison where they'd be punished or even killed. This was the man that Jesus chose. Now, the story of Saul's conversion is recorded only once here, but Luke records his testimony. Like, he shares the story several times in the book of Acts, and we also see it in several of Paul's letters. And so, put that together, we get this picture of who this guy is. We learn that Saul is as Jewish as Jewish can get. He was trained under the great rabbi Gamaliel, That was the rabbi who we heard in Acts chapter 5 as Peter and James were were beaten and, and brought before this council to decide whether they should be kept in prison or killed or whatever. Gamaliel was one of the few rabbis who said, hey, put them out of the room. Let's talk about this, guys. Leave them alone. We know if this is like a cult, if this is nothing, it will go away. But if this is of God, be careful. You won't be able to stop it. Well, doesn't sound like Saul listened to his teacher. He had learned much from this particular teacher. By age 13, Saul would have mastered Jewish history. He would have known all of the poetry of the Psalms, the writings of the prophets. He would have trained directly under this rabbi for five to six years. He would have known and memorized much of the Old Testament. According to his letter to the Galatians, The apostle Paul, Saul, described his education as one who advanced in Judaism beyond many of his own age among his people, being so extremely zealous for traditions of the fathers. He was a first-class student, advancing beyond his peers, dedicated to his self-righteousness. I say that because he was a really good Pharisee. He tithed, he memorized his Bible verses, he went to church, synagogue every Saturday. He was a good, self-righteous Jew. See, there's two ways to avoid relationship with God. And we kind of, I don't say celebrate, but we understand at least those who avoid God by being really bad. And we think, yeah, Jesus If he was here, he would go hang out in the slums, in whatever ugly bars or or meth labs, or whatever bad thing we met. That's where Jesus would go. He'd want to hang out with sinners. And all the while, we ignore the sinners that are actually the religious ones who need just as much grace. Because the other way to avoid God is to actually be really good. And that's what Saul did. Saul wasn't self-indulgent. He was self-righteous. And he still avoided... God, much like the prodigal son's older brother did. We're excited for the prodigal son, but what about the prodigal older brother? That's Saul. Both need grace. And Jesus spent much time with Pharisees because he actually, at times, if you read carefully, you'll see how much compassion he actually showed the Pharisees and with sadness how he looked at them because they were so lost. Well, Saul is lost and he needs just as much grace question is, why did he hate the church so much? Well, he believed that the people of the way or the so-called Nazarenes were corrupting the religion that he loved so much and threatening the traditions of his fathers. In his eyes, basically, Christianity was like a Jewish little cult that was now threatening what was legitimate faith. And so he and others like him couldn't accept that Jesus This Nazarene was the actual Messiah. That's crazy. How could this guy be the promised Savior, the anointed King of Israel? I mean, after all, he was conceived under very suspicious circumstances to a teenage mom who had been visited by an angel. Many mocked Jesus about that story. This was the man who was born in a feeding trough and grew up in the armpit of Galilee in a town called Nazareth, of which nothing ever good came out of. This was the man whose ministry supposedly included miracles, but without question included breaking God's law like the Sabbath and threatening God's temple and making false claims of Messiahship. This guy, and then to make matters worse, he died on a cross. A cross, of which the Old Testament said, you're cursed if you die on a cross. That was the most torturous and humiliating death imaginable. The Romans actually invented it to demonstrate their power against anyone who had opposed their rule. It was to show his weakness. It was to show that, you know what? They mocked him by calling him king of the Jews. We'll show you who's king. King. And on top of all of that, this crazy story about him rising from the dead. So Paul saw that as foolishness. Worse. Lies. How could anyone believe such a crazy story? Let us not forget, this is the man who died believing this. Something changed him. Saul was not merely a man who was kind of offended by Christians. He was enraged and furious and murderous. It's interesting in chapter 9 where it says that he was seeking out those belonging to the way and it says that he was doing that as he followed his own way. This is very much just a picture. Saul is not just a special case. But in truth, he represents every sinner's disposition toward Jesus apart from grace. See, if you don't see yourself as Saul, we don't like to see ourselves as that rebellious, that that angry at God, that rejecting of who he is. But if you don't see yourself that way, you don't understand the grace that has been shown to you, that only sinners going their own way need grace. And that's Saul. And so what changed? Well, we see as we read, he has these letters of authority from the high priest taking this small police force going into Damascus. He travels about 150 miles from Jerusalem where he's heard that there are some people of the way dwelling there. And on the way... Jesus shows up. Saul's not looking for Jesus. He thinks Jesus is dead and buried. But Jesus comes looking for him. Resurrected Jesus comes looking for him. And when Jesus shows up, that which was foolish, that which was evil, that which was crazy, becomes the very truth of God in a moment to him. We must understand that, that there's no such thing as inviting Jesus into your hearts. I know that that has become an a, a aspect of, of church culture. We invite Jesus in our heart and, and it's well-intended. It's, it's meant to describe an experience that we're having. It feels like I'm inviting. You need to understand that biblically speaking, Especially as we see it played out here in Acts chapter 9, there's no inviting Jesus into your heart. There's no inviting Jesus onto the throne of your life. There is a surrender to an invasion of Jesus into your life. Jesus is not waiting for your invitation, He is invading and then transforming you with His love and His grace and His forgiveness. He is changing you, see. Jesus as some lunatic, some liar to Lord. That's a major shift. He's not just saving people to call themselves Christians and do Christians' things. He's transforming a life in every way. And that's what he does to Paul. And how does he do this? Well, he shows up and you see the first words Jesus speaks, Saul. Calls Saul's name. By grace, he chooses Saul. You know, secretly, I think we probably like to pick and choose those who we think should be saved and who probably shouldn't. We imagine those who deserve grace and those who do not, but the idea of deserving grace reveals that we don't understand grace. It's not deserved. It's not earned. It's not expected. None of us is worthy, though. I think many of us go, you know, Jesus is pretty lucky to have me on his team. My guess is that more Christians prayed for Saul's termination instead of praying for salvation. We think of all the enemies to the cross that are in the world, members of ISIS, members of different groups that literally kill Christians to this day. And while we should pray for the protection of our brothers and sisters in Christ because there are people dying for the gospel this very day we also ought pray for the salvation of those who are persecuting the church because there's no greater evangelist than someone like a Saul who's taken out of a people and then sent back in to proclaim the truth of Jesus. And that's happening. Jesus saves sinners. And you think of the people in your life right now who are the hard cases. You think, <sighs> What's it going to take? I'll tell you what it's going to take. It's going to take Jesus invading their life. It's not going to take some moment of intellectual understanding. It's not going to take the perfect argument. It's not going to take some horrible experience, though we see that at times like, oh, well, that person's suffering. Now they finally cry the to Jesus. That's because Jesus invaded their life. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said that there are some who Jesus mentions before the eternal throne who we have never thought to mention. They have never been observed by any interceding Christian whose cases have never impressed a godly heart and yet Jesus knows them and he does cry to God for them and shall by grace draw him to himself. I am so glad Jesus continues to pursue and save. But notice what he does, right? It's not just magic words, right? It's not just Jesus saying some cold technical terms that he's going to assent to. There's this intimacy to grace because Jesus says his name twice. That only happens a handful of times in Scripture where God is interacting with his people or an individual and he says their name twice. And most often it's a very intensely personal address. Because salvation is not some cold contractual matter. It's a matter of relationship with your creator and king. And in John chapter 10, if you read that about Jesus describing himself, he says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, his sheep Know his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And he doesn't say, Hey, Jesus' sheep. He says, Saul. He says, Sam. He says, Beth. He says, Tom. He says, He said your name you like, we, we see a guy like Saul saved and we go, we can imagine like, hey, in heaven, like Jesus saves this Saul guy and the angels stand around going, whoa, 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 uh, Jesus. Do you, do you know who that dude is? He's the guy that's been killing Christians. He's the guy that hates you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? I know. I know him. I know every thought and evil intention of his heart. I know every single thing he has ever said or done. Saul. Saul. Saul was a sinner whom Jesus died for while he was a sinner. Saul was an enemy of the cross whom Jesus reconciled when he was hostile. This is the grace of God to each and every one of us. The God who sees the dirt that you try to hide from other people. The God who knows all of your secrets. The God who fully embraces, if you will, the guilt you have, the shame you have, and cleanses you of it. He doesn't reject you. That's grace. He rescues you and he saves you to himself by calling your name. You know, every denial of Jesus is never intellectual and it's never emotional and neither is the acceptance of Christ. It's so much deeper. We are saved by Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and left to ourselves. We will seek after our own way and it will not be to choose God because that is crazy and foolish. There are many, many who will admire Jesus as a great teacher. There are many who will respect Jesus as a great example and martyr. But there are many more who will hate him as Lord, as owner of all. And the only thing that's going to change that is a resurrected Jesus showing up, calling your name, and blocking whatever road you've been walking away from him. And he does that. He saves still. For those of you who have been saved a long time, you and I both, probably get excited when you see new people saved by Jesus and you should but you should get as equally excited reminding yourself of your own salvation remember it and you know the best way to remember it talk about it But he doesn't just save us to himself. It says he saves us to his way. What do I mean by that? Well, you see the story goes on. Jesus asks him a question, really just to reveal a truth. He's like, why are you persecuting me? If you didn't know, you should not be persecuting Jesus, the Lord of the universe. So wisely, Saul responds. So if you ever have an experience, I'm not saying it won't happen, it may, where you are blinded by a light and you hear Jesus' voice, you may want to respond first and foremost with, Lord. Who are you? Lord. In another account, Paul is telling this story and he includes a different phrase after this question. It's not here. I believe it's here in the King James. But in Acts 26, a question or a statement, I should say, is made by Jesus after he says, Who are you, Lord? Jesus says, It's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? And we all go, Yes, mm-hmm, yes. What does that mean? <laughs> right? An ox goad was a stick with a really sharp piece of iron on the tip of it, called a prick. And when they were plowing and directing this this Cattle or cow or ox would shove it in a side or whatever direction they wanted to go. And sometimes the animal would rebel by kicking out at the sharp point and this would result in that point being driven even further into the flesh of that beast. So he yes, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? In essence, the ox, the more it rebelled, the more it suffered. The more it worked against the way that it was supposed to work, it hurt. Saul had so much going for him. He was educated and passionate and zealous and sincere and all these things. But he was pointed the wrong direction. And it's amazing, if you've thought about this, I see this in my children, I see this in friends of mine, where you see a person with passion and, and giftedness and, and all this sincerity and you're like, if you would only go that direction with it! Or man, if Jesus grabbed a hold of this person, holy cow, what they would Do for the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God. There's an incredible hope in that. And in Saul, we see Jesus do that. Take a guy that like, man, everyone had written off and everyone was scared of. And Jesus said, no, there's something special there. We just need to redirect it. So he tells Saul, I want you to go into the city. And Saul, because he's blind... Obeys him. Ironically, the guy who thought he could see it all can see nothing now. He's led by hand into this town he was going to ravage, and now it's become a refuge. And he sits for three days and waits. As he waits, the Lord appears to a believer in the town who's been hiding out named Ananias. And I love this exchange. This is why the Bible is so awesome, because it's very real. I can see this exchange happening. And if you can't, you're weird. You should be able to see this. Okay? So Ananias, sleeping, maybe gets a vision during the day, whatever. He gets a vision. And it's Jesus, and he says, I want you to rise and go to the street called Straight. There was literally a street called Straight that went through the center of the town. And at the house of Judas, very specific, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias knows exactly who he's talking about. And so he's like, Oh Jesus! Yeah, I want you to go, and I have this mission for you. Oh, cool! Go down straight, and you're gonna find this guy named Salt. What? Who? Well, as if God doesn't know, but He still responds. I don't know if you knew this, Jesus, but this is the guy who has letters of authority to arrest and put us in prison. This is the guy that killed Stephen. You remember Stephen? He was like one of your top dudes. This is the guy who's killing Christians. You want me, a Christian, to go see him? We just had a meeting about this. We were, we were going to hide out until he was gone. He's fearful and understandably so. I've heard it said that everybody loves to hear Jesus say, Come to me. Come to me, those who are heavy and burdened. Come to me and find rest. But when Jesus says, go, that's when Christianity becomes difficult. And that's what Ananias is told. I want you to go. And this difficult obedience. Now I love that, that God doesn't rebuke Ananias. He's not afraid of questions, even dumb ones, seemingly. He understands the emotion of difficult things. And so Ananias cries out, he's like, Lord, this is hard. And he says, Don't worry. He said, go, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. This is about me, Ananias, not you. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And if you're wondering how much he suffered, you can read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul suffered more than many of us ever will in taking the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. Saul and Ananias and all of us are the very thing that Jesus says Saul was, a chosen instrument. If you hear nothing else, I want you to hear this, especially for those who are in Christ. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. You are an instrument in the hands of our Redeemer who is using it for his kingdom purposes. And when he returns, you're going to learn that real quick and figure it out. might want to get on board now your life is not your own. That's what he tells Ananias, pretty much. Ananias, your life's not your own and neither is Saul's. He's mine, you're mine, do my work, it'll work out great. Trust me. We all have different ministries. They all look a little bit different. We're all, some of us Ananias, some are Saul's, some are Mark's, some are all kinds of people, but they're all on the same one mission of God who is bringing his name to this world. And someday Jesus is returning to bring his name completely here and will live in his presence for eternity. The grace of Jesus changed everything for Saul. He was a man who was hating Jesus changed to someone who loved Jesus. A man who was persecuting Jesus to one who is going to be persecuted for Jesus. A one who ignored Jesus didn't care where Jesus was leading. To one who followed Jesus and talked with Jesus and constantly sought Jesus, seeking what would you do? What have me do next? When Jesus saves him or saves you to Himself, He also saves you to His mission. What do I mean by that? I don't mean a mission trip to Ethiopia. I simply mean this: every single Christian is one who in Christ has ceased to do what he wants to do and has begun to do what Christ wants him to do. Summary. That's a Christian. I no longer do what I want to do. I know along my own way, I walk under the lordship of Jesus and I do what he wants me to do with my life and my time and my treasure. That's a Christian. And that's what happens to Paul. See, salvation is not merely about being loved by Jesus. It is about loving Jesus. Or, I'll say it this way to make you feel better as Paul does, being controlled by the love of Jesus so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. I hope, I hope that we will all Know the love of Christ and be compelled by that love. If you've ever heard of the writer Jerry Bridges, I love his writing. He passed last year, I believe. He wrote some great books. A friend of mine, pastor friend of mine, got to interact with his daughter. He was pretty old, and so I imagine she's probably, um, you know, an older age as well, because he was like 80 or 90, and so I'm sure she's older. But he was talking to his daughter, and he said, "Like, tell me about your dad. Like, why? Why? What do you remember about him? What was the most important thing?" And she said, "The thing that drove my dad more than anything, I think, was that he never ceased to be amazed by God's grace." You know, Paul was the same way. I have, this, I have one tattoo because someone gave me a certificate to get it and I won't pay for it myself. So it's 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of which I am the foremost. That's Paul writing about himself, reflecting on who he was. This is later in life. I am the greatest sinner, he says. And he later talks about how big grace is because of that. That's how he viewed himself. He never forgot that moment on the road to Damascus. And it shaped every other moment thereafter. And there's no better like indication of that by not just what he did, by the things he said. Fill in the blank. For me to live is... But we don't say that. I think naturally many of us will fill in that blank with lots of other stuff. For me to live is my family. That sounds like a good thing. For me to live is security, prosperity. What does Paul say? In prison, I'm a prisoner for Christ and for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. He says in that same letter, I account everything as lost from the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ resurrected. We talk about being saved to a way. We're talking about an entirely different way of thinking and perceiving and living. And I wish there was some perfect switch that I go, well, as long as I sit down with a Christian, I'll push these buttons and they will live this way. The only reason That we would ever live like Paul and sacrifice our lives for Jesus is because of God's grace. Of us knowing the depth of the love that Christ has for us and Him moving us, Him stirring us, Him pushing us. And I pray that He does. And if you go, I don't feel that way, pray for His grace. You may have not known it, but you sang a song that's kind of dangerous one of my favorite hymns, All I Have is Christ. We sang that in the first set. There's a line in there that if you sang it, I hope you meant it, but my fear is sometimes we sing songs that are familiar and we just, hey, oh, Jesus, yeah, I love you, and that's it, right? There's a line in there. First it's, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. That, we could spend a lot of time on that. But there's a line in there that says this, Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. That describes Saul. My prayers that will describe me over time. That's a dangerous prayer. Can you imagine praying that every morning? Getting up? Ah! Father, use my ransomed life in any way that you choose. Really? Powerful. The last thing we see is not just Jesus saving us to himself and to his mission, but also to his people. Three days pass, Paul does nothing, eats nothing, says nothing, drinks nothing, sees nothing, prays about everything. His world had been rocked, right? And he wasn't rocked by the one who showed up and said, Hey, I would like you on my team. Why don't you call yourself a Christian and do Christian things? He says, no, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. Take up what is going to be a humiliating, sufferable life for the joy of being with your Savior. A knock came at the door. And we went there. like, Paul probably felt excited. Ananias is probably terrified. You know, you can imagine him going down, okay, there's Judas's house. All right. No one's here. And <laughs> walk away. Beep. I, I, I tried, Lord, I knocked and no one answered. So I don't know what to tell you. They're not there. You, you're wrong. Can you imagine the fear he must have felt, right? But maybe not. I do think he probably had secret meetings prior to this time going, what are we going to do when Saul the persecutor shows up? Now he's going to his door. But it says he entered the house. We should read this carefully in verse 17 and 18. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? He calls him Brother Saul. Not Saul the persecutor. Not just Saul. Brother Saul. This is the man who had murdered, literally, his brothers. But the man who had murdered his brothers had become a brother. Nothing can explain that but the grace of Jesus. This also shows us that community is part of God's salvation. That He doesn't just save us personally. He saves us with His people. And Ananias is the first, but he won't be the last brother or sister in Christ that comes along Paul and helps him become the apostle that God has called him to be. The journey along the Damascus Road was and is a powerful experience, but it is never, ever an individual one. There are people in your life who shared the gospel with you, but even prior to that, who prepared you to hear the gospel. There are people when you receive the gospel who are there to celebrate with you. And there are people now here to grow with you in the gospel. That is the way God designed his salvation. That's why in the book of Proverbs it warns us against isolation. It says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own way, his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. God did not intend for us to do and experience the fullness of our salvation alone. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's very difficult because you may be called to embrace as Ananias people like Saul and to be brother and sister with them. But it is beautiful when that happens. Gospel community doesn't save, but it helps us experience the fullness of our salvation. And gospel community, true gospel community, is unlike any community there is. Because it has the power to bring people together who have nothing in common, more than that, are complete opposite, more than that, are enemies. Ananias, And Saul, brothers, the beauty of gospel community is that we we gather here as the church. Restoration Road Church isn't built on the fact that we like all the same things or that we have the same experiences. It's that we are really condemned by the same sin and saved by the same Savior. We are not friends because of affinity. We're friends because we have the same friend in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. You take out the gospel and our relationships fall apart. And if that doesn't happen, we have to ask ourselves, what is our church and what are our relationships built on? The gospel overcomes all these barriers we have, all these differences we have, and it binds us together as the people of God to proclaim the glories of the grace of God gospel community is unlike any other community because it's founded on Jesus, which means it's a love like Jesus and we speak like Jesus and we help like Jesus. And we certainly don't do this perfectly. But look at what we see in Ananias, right? He enters into Saul's brokenness. Apart from Christ, we don't do that. But with Christ, you know what? We get messy with each other. And it's not like, hey, I'll pray for you and we keep them at an arm's distance. If you spend any amount of time in this church and you struggle with sin or struggle with brokenness, you're going to find brothers and sisters of Christ diving headfirst into your life, whether you want it or not. Because like Ananias, gospel community gets close enough to touch, to actually touch and get dirty. And gospel community... Doesn't just speak encouraging words, though it should, right? Ananias doesn't come and say, hey, Paul, everything's going to be okay. Um, God's got a plan, uh, and he just wants you to, like, be comforted. That's not what he says. You see that he speaks the words that Jesus speaks to him. And that's what gospel community does. We speak Jesus' words to each other because those are the words that empower. Those are the words that heal. Those are the words that send us places. Gospel community also helps us accomplish our main purpose in this life, which is to conform more to the image of Jesus. What does Ananias do? Hey, Jesus has come that you might be filled with the Spirit, and now let's go get baptized. What is he doing? He's helping him identify with Jesus, identify with the church, and to come to the fullness of Jesus by obeying what he has commanded him to do. My mission with you, and I pray your mission with me, and our mission with one another is to bring each other up to maturity in Christ. That's it. We gather together so that we can experience the fullness of mature manhood in Christ. That's what Paul says in the letter of Ephesians. That's what he says. His whole purpose is in Acts 20. I am trying to bring you to the fullness of maturity in Christ. And gospel community does more than just say spiritual things, even more than just speak Jesus' words. We see that Ananias makes sure that Saul gets some food. We are here to help each other's tangible material needs. The most important need you have is not to have a filled stomach and not to have warm clothes. That is a need, though. The most important need you have is to know Jesus. But we would fail if we only give Jesus our love in ways that can be felt and that's what gospel community does. We show up, and we help people move. We give meals to one another. We visit each other in the hospital. Like we help each other because Jesus has poured himself and helped to us. Now, the Damascus road experience is the story of complete life transformation and community transformation and purpose transformation. And what begins with an unexpected encounter with Jesus kind of transforms us into turning away from what we've been doing and following the way that Jesus has for us and walking with others who are doing the same thing so that others might see and experience more grace. And if there's anyone here who does not believe yet, I'm always going to put a yet on there. If Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is beginning even slightly to become less foolish to you, I want you to know that is the grace of God calling you. That he's speaking your name. Respond to him. Because the cross, apart from Christ, It's crazy. And so it's becoming a little less crazy. That's Jesus whispering or screaming. Take either one. But for those who do know Christ, for those here who would say, the cross isn't foolishness to me. The resurrection is not foolishness to me. I want you to remember your salvation. You didn't one day just decide to go, you know what? I think I'm going to join Jesus' team. Though it may have felt like that. It was all grace. You were walking down a road of either self-indulgence or self-righteousness. And Jesus stood in the road and He said your name twice. He says, I know who you are. You can fool everybody else, but you haven't fooled me. And I love you. And I forgive you. And I want to change you because I love you so much. Does that amaze you anymore? Again, it's, it's awesome to see, you know, new believers in Christ. But what about your own salvation? Have you ceased to be amazed by that grace? Ask God to wow you with that grace. I'll end with what Paul says about his own experience. And my prayer is that this becomes you. In talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, Jesus was raised three days after his crucifixion and he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 and then to more than 500 at one time And then to his brother James. He's naming all the people that Jesus showed up to when he was resurrected. And then he says, And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And describing himself, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let us all be able to say that. Who would we be apart from the grace of Christ? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Jesus' blood was not wasted on me. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder, driven by grace. I don't obey to be accepted. I am accepted, so I obey. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Don't waste the grace. Don't waste the grace that's been shown to you. Don't waste it by forgetting yourself Don't waste it by not being as gracious to others. Don't waste it by not telling others about the amazing grace of Christ who loves you in your guilt, in your shame, in your brokenness, and knows every detail about you. And yet while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That's love in an amazing way. Let's pray.